there's a thing that happens with pastors where they when they feel like they could get fired or move to a a less amenable church they really toe the line and they really behave themselves and don't preach a very hard message and are much more inclined towards easy beliefism and cheap grace you find the other kinds of pastors that are really inclined in that direction are pastors that love money and status but there's this other extreme that takes over sometimes if a pastor is well instantiated and uh, not much chance he's going to get moved where they can kind of get a little nutty and start to feel like that's his pulpit, that's my pulpit, and um, there's there's not as much caution against, oh, I don't know, ego. So I've seen some pretty crazy sermons from pastors that feel quite entitled to make it about them. I think the place most pastors need to be is somewhere in between where they're, well, really, it's just a different place where the pastor is oriented, the preacher is oriented only by a fear and a love of the Lord and a desire to use the time well and provide as close to as perfect a reflection of God's Word as possible. That's where I've tried to be for a long time. I hate that at one point I was afraid of getting fired or corrected. I wish I had never learned to fear others, but I did. And I'm not going to lie and say that I don't now, but I am going to say that since we disaffiliated from the United Methodist Church and right now we're just doing – we're an independent church right now. That's not where I want to be, but that's where we are. Anyway, I'm just not as afraid, and I would like to think that I'm still not falling into that extreme of just saying the craziest, most extreme thing, but I am – I am being less guarded in my portrayal of what God's Word says, and that carries through in today's podcast, um, which is, of course, the proclamation of the Word from worship this last Sunday. I preached on 1 Corinthians 3. If you missed 1 and 2, you know, go back the last couple weeks, and uh, we're going to go through all of 1 Corinthians, God willing. But I talked about how it is that our culture is mirroring the culture of the Corinthians and the ways in which our American church today is inclined to loosen the standards. Even though we have so much scriptural warning against that, that's just a human desire and it's going to get us killed, y'all. And so I I spoke pretty flatly about it in the sermon this last Sunday, and (laughs) in Delaware, you know, they received it pretty well. In Nowata, it was less enthusiastic, but the thing was I heard later from a number of people who know that I was speaking from a place of love. I I hate that at the end of history we're going to find so many people who are just crestfallen and heartbroken and surprised and... They feel like their pastor really let them down because they didn't tell them what the expectation was. And and I just really don't want any of the people who worship with me or even the person listening to me right now. I, I hate to imagine that you're going to come before the judgment seat of Christ and be caught unawares because nobody told you what the standard was going to be. Now, it's what I said on Sunday, what you're about to listen to, is not an exhaustive list of all the ways in which our culture compromises our faith. 
but I do hit on some big ones. So I pray that your heart is softened and that you can receive my words despite how uh, firm they are. I pray that God work in your heart, that the Holy Spirit sanctify you, that you're brought closer to an authentic body of Christ. And if you live around me, I, I hope you feel inclined to come be with me, not because I have nice words and uh, I preach an easy faith, but because you trust that I love you and I'm going to tell you the truth. So let's get on with it, shall we? Here we go. Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Ready to go on? Verse 5. What after all? Hey, let me just stop for a second. I hope as I'm preaching on this, you're not feeling like I'm preaching against you. I'm not aware of anyone being divisive in the body right now. We're getting along very well. I'm very pleased that as, you know, I'm going to give a firm word today because Paul is firm and it would be wrong not to be firm as he is firm. But just in case y'all are curious, if somebody's not in the know, this church gets along. We don't have any divisions that I'm aware of right now. We don't have anybody saying, well, you know, I mean, there's a temptation in the church to go, man, I was a lot happier back when so-and-so was preacher, you know. Uh, Just real quick, Paul in other books of the Bible does say that when there is false doctrine in the church or bad leadership, like uh, ungodly leadership, that you have to have division, you have to leave and divide in the church. He's very clear about that. What's happening here is he's saying, The differences are not over doctrine, they're over style. That's the only reason that he's saying me and Apollos and Kephas, we're all on the same side. He's going to get into this in a minute, and that's not worthy of division. We in the body, I I think we have a clear sense that even if people don't like my style for one reason or another, my style doesn't matter. What matters is Christ Jesus, and if I'm preaching true doctrine, that's really... It. And if I'm not preaching true doctrine, y'all got to take me out of this pulpit, right? You got to put somebody in the pulpit that's preaching true doctrine. Amen? But while I am preaching to true doctrine, I know there are some people who look back on the time of Rick Thayer as, oh man, those were good days. We had packed seats. We had a lot of vitality, a big budget. There are people sometimes who will divide churches like that, not this church. This church goes, hey, those were good days. These are good days too. God is still good. And that's, that's how a church needs to be. It can't be about the preacher. It cannot be about the preacher for reasons that we're about to see here. It has to be about who God is and who he calls us to be. And you want uh, someone leading who is connecting those dots well. And I hope I'm doing that for you. That is my life's goal. If at any point it becomes clear, I'm just not doing a good job for you, I need to go. Amen? All right. Verse 5. What after all is Apollos. And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned each his task. Is a servant a high or a low rank? Low. He's saying, we're not high rank. We're not to be esteemed high. We are low. He is, he is debasing himself. There, there are people who are wanting to lift him up and say, oh, we follow Paul. He's such a great guy. He's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. At one point in Acts of the Apostles, uh, that's the fourth book of the New Testament, 
People start praising Herod and saying, this is not the voice of a man, this is the voice of a God. And he receives that praise and immediately God strikes him dead because he deserved it. And that's what every single pastor deserves who takes praise for himself rather than redirecting towards God. If you ever see a pastor that's receiving praise and not redirecting towards God, uh, that, that guy you do, have nothing to do with them. And it's not just pastors. When we all come to understand ourselves rightly, then we understand none of us deserve praise because God is so good. And any praise given to someone other than God is badly given. Verse 6, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. This is obviously a metaphor. Paul, he might have had a personal garden. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying, you are the garden. I planted you. Apollos, I left. Apollos came. He's now watered you. But even so, it's God who makes you grow. We today, we, have, we live in like a, a determinist, materialist world. We just assume, yeah, you put a seed in the ground, you water it, it grows. Ancient Jews understood without God's active engagement, nothing grows. God intentionally looks at each seed and says, grow. He looks at every bit of water in a river and says, flow. He looks at every soul in our every uh, cell in our bodies and makes us hold together intentionally. God wills this whole world to work in the ways that it does. We act like it's some impersonal force, physics. The Bible is very clear. God makes these things happen. So Paul, yes, he says, I, I started you off. It's God who grows. And you tell me, is it harder to plant a seed or make it grow? Obviously, make it grow. What we do here, there is nothing we can do to compete with God. We deserve no glory. It's all for his. In the Gospel of Luke, whenever Peter, when, when Jesus talks about the last day, he says those who are welcomed in, well, the only thing they'll say is we are but unprofitable servants. We're not going to be patting ourselves on the back or the chest. We're not going to say, oh, I did do really good for you, Jesus, didn't I? That thing I did, oh, it was really good, wasn't it? No, the only thing good servants come and say is, I'm just an unprofitable servant. You are good, God, you alone. And that's what he's doing here. He's saying, me and Apollos, yes, we planted that church. We're nothing. God deserves glory, not us. Verse 7, so neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. For we, sorry, I didn't put the emphasis there. For we, me and Apollos, are co-workers in God's service, but you, the church, are God's field, God's building. So one of the things he said, it's mirrored several times in the New Testament, we will be judged according to our works. Here, he does not seem to be saying that you're, they're going to go to hell if something wrong happens. Rather, in the judgment, there seems to be special honor given to some who are more faithful than others. And he's going to talk about that a little bit more. The particulars of it are not clear. The one who plants and the one who waters have the same purpose. The, I, I don't know how many of you will remember, in chapter 1, he talks about the factions. Some say, I belong to Paul, I belong to Cephas, I belong to Apollos. The last one is, I belong to Christ. The, the people I'm reading are saying, well, of course we all belong to Christ, but if that's a faction that is then rejecting the authority of Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, then that's a problem too. 
what the New Testament authors are all trying to do, whether we're talking Peter, Paul, James, Jude, they're trying to keep us in balance. So right now, the, the people are giving too much authority, too much glory to preachers. But there's also another extreme, which we heard about in Jude, where they have no regard for the elders whatsoever. And they just do whatever is right in their own eyes. And that is also wrong. Here, he's correcting an extreme. They have an extreme of lifting up preachers. He's putting them down. And other places, Jude, say, is lifting them up. Or James. We have to have right relationship. So, are you all here to worship me? No, of course not. Hopefully, you're here to honor me and to honor one another. That's what we do in the church. We don't come in saying, well, I have this relationship with God that you all need to operate around. That's not how this works. We all come in saying, you have something to teach me and I have something to learn. We're all coming in with humility, earnestly desiring God and being open to one another. Amen? Amen. Otherwise, it's not the church. It's just a social club. You be you, I'll be me. We'll sing the same songs together, but we'll remain unchanged. There is no point to that. We're not doing anything if that's how we are. But if we're open to one another, vulnerable, allowing ourselves to be corrected. You know, there are a lot of people that coach today, and they, I've heard a lot of coaches of kids' teams say, kids are not teachable. They're not correctable. If you have a kid on a team that can't be corrected or taught, is your team going to be very good? No, you got to keep that kid on the bench. And yet, how many of us come into the church saying, well, I, I don't have anything to be corrected about. I know what I'm doing. We all have to be earnest. We have to be humble. We have to be correctable. Otherwise, we're not going to be much to look at for God. Oh, where are we? Verse 10? I think so. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. Does Paul feel good about the work he did in Corinth? Yeah. He said, I'm a wise master builder. I laid a good foundation. Who is the foundation? Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is always the foundation. But each one should build with care, he says. Why should we build with care? Because there are consequences if we don't. Verse 11, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, that's not to actually say that nobody can build a foundation other than Jesus. That's to say that he is the only foundation that will last. Remember, we're told in 2 Peter and in Revelation that after the final judgment, there is going to be a fire in the heavens and on earth that burns away everything that is not in Christ Jesus. In the heavens and the earth, everything is going to be burned away. It's going to build on this idea here as well. If you build a church or anything on a foundation other than Jesus, it will be burned away. It will not last. So Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, tells the story of the two builders, a wise one and a foolish one. The wise man built his house upon the rock, which is Christ Jesus, and the foolish man built his house upon the sand. When the floods came, the one on the sand with a bad foundation, his house washed away. It was worth nothing. The one on the rock withstood. You and I, brothers and sisters, are trying to build our house upon that rock, that foundation, which is Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen? Verse 12, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. Let's put a pin in that. What kind of building is made with gold, silver, and costly stones? 
Y'all, anybody of you, you have your building, your houses made of that? No. What kind of building is made with gold, silver, and costly stones? There's really only... So temples and palaces, really, are it. And the temple is God's palace. Now, let's look again at verse 9. For we, me and Apollos, are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. He's using two different metaphors, but they're actually the same. For anyone who's looked at how the temple, Solomon's temple that he built for God, that God's presence abided in, abode in, excuse me, it had all kinds of garden imagery throughout, didn't it? Palm trees and pomegranates depicted all over the place. And in ancient Jewish literature, they referred to God's temple also as a field or garden. Let's remind ourselves, when God first made humans, where did he put them? In a garden. And the temple was designed to recreate an Edenic paradise that humans could enter in and be in right relationship with God again. So it sounds like he's using two metaphors, a field and a building, but he's actually using just one. You are the temple of God, and he's going to get to that in a minute. He says, we are building God's temple. And depending on the quality of the workmanship and the, the, the materials you use, on the last day when everything's burned away, it's going to be exposed if you worked well for God or if you just slap things together. It will be revealed with fire, it says. We're in verse 13, if I, if I uh, confuse you. It will be re revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Hopefully you feel like this is fitting together. I've already talked about the fires at the end of history. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved. Even though only as one escaping through the flames. So here it doesn't seem to be saying, you know, if you're a crappy church builder, you're going to hell. I don't think it's saying that. But it is saying the better we build, the, the more God will esteem us on the day of judgment. I don't know what that looks like. I don't, he doesn't give any clues for that here. But the clear uh, inference is it matters how we build, right? And this is one of my fears. My fear, one of my fears is what if I give my life to this church, pour out my life to this church for years, and on the last day it's revealed that I really didn't build up much of anything, you know? And that's not to say anything, uh, well, it is to say something about you, but not in the sense I'm disappointed, but it's in the sense that, like, what if I think I'm building up with good quality and I'm actually mistaken, you know? I have to have that humility. I can't preach at you about humility and then not have humility. How do you think it matters? How do you think it's revealed the quality of what we build here together on the last day. What, what kind of thing do you think it's talking about here? Huh? Yeah, the fruits of our faith. So if we imagine a, a, a purifying fire. So in Malachi, it talks about how our Lord is a refiner's fire, right? And he's talking about Jesus, fuller soap. He's a purifying agent. This is what fires do. They also hurt and are painful, and we're told that there's a lake of fire for those uh, who, who refuse Christ in the end. But also, uh, the Holy Spirit is compared to fire. You know, the Holy Spirit is a purifying agent, and it hurts. So as what we build here is exposed to fire, I think that means that we're exposed to pain, and whether or not we hold up under pain or if we fall away. You know, remember Jesus' parable about the seeds? The sower sowed the seeds, and uh, some of it was instantly plucked up by Satan. 
Some of it, the weeds grew up and choked off, and, you know, that's people who are concerned with cares and pleasures of this world. Some of it grew up, but it didn't take deep root. It was among rocks, and these are people who are subject to uh, persecution from the sun, and, and they fry. Per and that's what I think he's talking about here is on the last day, you know, there's going to be a time of tribulation. How are we going to do in tribulation? Are we going to maintain our, our stance by Christ? Or are we going to fall away? How are we going to maintain among the temptations of life? Are we going to maintain? I think that's what it's talking about is when you're building up a church, a local assembly, do these people stick to Jesus when life is really good or really bad? Or do they find themselves distracted by good stuff and then discouraged by bad stuff? I think we have to be very clear that a, an earnest church is building up disciples that stick no matter what. Amen? Just so you know, all cards on the table, I am trying to manipulate you into being a disciple that sticks no matter what. No matter what happens, no matter if you get broken, homeless, and cast out on the street, no matter if you win the lottery, don't get lottery tickets, but if you win the lottery, no matter what happens, that you stick close by Jesus, you are subject to his lordship, everything you have and are is for him. That's the kind of people that God desires and deserves. And if I am not facilitating that in you, I am a bad, foolish builder. And I might make it to heaven, but it's just barely going to be by the skin of my teeth. I, just barely escaping the flames. If you love me and you want good things for me, please be a good disciple. If you love each other and you want good things for each other, please be Trust and obey. Stand by the Lord. Even if you don't love yourself enough to do that, if you love others, and I hope you do, be faithful disciples. Because on the last day, the fires are going to come, and they're going to test the quality of this church. And if this church falls apart and we don't withstand those, those flames, I'm just going to be so sad. Christians fall away because we don't have a vision for that last day. We keep focusing on today. We, like the Corinthians, are focused on the world around us, wanting to fit in, wanting to feel comfortable. We need to make the last day much more real to us than today. Verse 16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? I feel like I've already laid the understanding for how we, I think we can move along. If anyone destroys God's temple, okay, who, what's God's temple? It's the collective body of Christ. He's not talking about hurting an individual member. He's talking about hurting the body. And it's not that it's okay to hurt an individual member, but the concern here is division in the body of Christ. If you have someone dividing the body of Christ, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. He's saying unity in the church matters, isn't he? It matters so much that if anyone ruins our unity, God will destroy you. So you better make sure if you're causing division in the body, it is over something essential. If I start getting up here and saying that sin is not a big deal and we're not born in sin and there's no need for repentance, you have to divide. You cannot allow that heresy from the pulpit. You cannot allow for people to start going, ooh, I like that gospel. I'm going to follow that gospel. No. But until then, if we're preaching true doctrine, then it doesn't matter. Is anybody hot in here? I'm hot. I cannot go, they keep it too hot in that church, I'm leaving. Let's form a party where we are controlling that thermostat. 
If you didn't listen to the Jim Patton interview, he said there used to be two ladies in this church that didn't like each other very much, and they had an usher. One would call the usher over and say, turn it down. He'd go over to the thermostat, turn it down, and the other one would call, you better turn that back up. And they would look at each other. They didn't like each other very much. And that's kind of funny, but this scripture condemns them. And it can be something funny and silly like that, but there are churches that divide over all kinds of non-essential things. They condemn themselves, and God will destroy them. Verse 18, do not deceive yourselves. Do humans deceive ourselves? All the time. Sober up. Don't deceive yourself. If any of you think you're wise by the standards of this age, if you think you're pretty smart, you're too big for your britches, whatever, you should become fools so that you may become wise. So remember, there's the wisdom of this age, then there's God's wisdom, and they are not the same thing. And we have to have that wisdom, that discernment, to know the difference between wisdom of this world, wisdom of the next. Now, are we better than the Corinthians? You know the answer to that is no. But we have some blind spots in our culture where we feel like it's okay for us to give in to the culture around us but, oh, these Corinthians, they were wrong. They, we don't need correction, but they do. What are some ways in which we allow ourselves to be corrupted by the culture around us? I'm talking about specific things in the church. Yeah, go ahead. When we, okay, when we're defensive. Okay, so that's it. I'm talking about specific societal issues that Christians have chosen to believe are okay, even though the Bible clearly says they're not. Okay, not repenting of sin. Okay, so the marital bond. So gay marriage is one of them. I mean, that's where the, the touchstone for the culture war has been. But that only happened because we did not maintain sexual purity standards before. So the uh, last figure I saw, 60% of evangelical Christians below the age of 30 believe it's okay to cohabitate and sleep together before marriage. There is no way to believe that if you believe God's word. You know, and they will come to it with worldly wisdom. Well, how can we know if we'll be a good fit unless we go up for a test drive? You don't do that with a car, do you? Is marriage a car, you idiot? It ain't right. And I know everybody's doing it, but if we don't hold the line on that, then of course it's going to fall apart in other areas. Time and time again, we were up against the culture. We didn't have the integrity to say, look... I don't care what metaphor you have. I don't care what reasoning you have. I don't care what science says or the latest statistical study. What God's word says is what God's word says. And if it says something is wrong, I'm not going to do it. Love of money is the root of all evil. Oh, is it really so bad to go to the casino? Yeah. The only reason you would gamble is for love of money, right? says, do not get drunk with wine. Do you think it's only talking about wine there, or do you think it's saying, don't get inebriated, don't get messed up with, with drugs? and, and, and I, think it's, I think it's pretty clear we're supposed to be sober and alert, that the scriptures are saying that clear. And yet, we live in marijuana country. Oh, I need it to get by. Oh, I've just got terrible anxiety. It has long to, well, we can get into the practical stuff. When it says we're supposed to be sober... How many people, oh, you know, I, I can get drunk every now and again. It's no big deal. I'm not doing this to fight. I'm doing this to show we, the church, do the same thing the Corinthians did where we have the cultural norms around us and we go, well, it's not that big a deal, is it? And Christians have to say, yeah, it's that big a deal. 
Don't do it. Everybody was with me until I got into the specific examples, and now everybody's looking down. <laughs> Friends, the scriptures are written for us not to look back down on people of the past and go, oh, they were so confused. We've got it all together now. If that's how you read scriptures, you're doing it wrong. You have to see yourself and go, where am I replicating the sin that he's correcting here? It might be worth going home and looking at other about, you know, looking at other values of the culture around us, normal practices, and scrutinizing, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. All right, I'll move on. Uh, verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. Okay, so I'll return to this idea. There are a lot of people who reason things out. I tried to show how that reasoning works around premarital sex, cohabitation, around doing drugs. Hey, I just can't function without this around, uh, you know, getting lottery tickets. We have ways of self-rationalizing, of deceiving ourselves. He says, don't deceive yourselves. You're called to be holy as God is holy. Verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So he's quoting from Job and from the Psalter there. He's the, this is something that we know about God. God is not impressed with human wisdom. Verse 21, so then, no more boasting about human leaders. Quit it. I know y'all love me, but whenever you're inviting someone to church, please don't go, oh, we have Pastor Jeffrey. Oh, we love him. So don't do that. Go, we have a good God and we have a wonderful church here. Please don't. I mean, I love, I love that you love me. Don't talk about me. Talk about God. So then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. These experts I've been reading, they say in the ancient world, the main way, you know, today our identity is like self-manufactured. Who are you? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm genderqueer, non-binary, uh, pansexual, whatever. That's what young people are being exposed to. You got to search your inner self and decide who you are. In the ancient world, it's who do you belong to? Women were considered property. Children were considered property. The vast majority of men were in slavery or uh, under, uh, most everybody was owned by somebody. Here he's making clear, you belong to God, don't you? And then as God's children, whom he loves at the last day, you will be revealed for that and you will reign alongside him. So all things are yours. That sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? But they're only ours in the same way that everything is of Christ. And you remember Christ, though he was God, humbled himself to become a human. And he died the death on a cross that was humiliating. He did not see his divinity as something to be grasped, but rather he poured himself out for others. And because he put himself down, God raised him up and gave him a name greater than any other name in heaven and on earth. And at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is God to the glory of God the Father, that he is, he is Lord. So here's the deal. Everything belongs to you. God has put, given you everything, but how you receive that exposes if you really are God's or not. He says, I belong to you, Apollos belongs to you, the future, all these things, they belong to you. But if you grasp them and you use them for your own glory, then you've revealed that you're a child of the evil one. 
But if you use your status as a child of God to glorify him and bless others, well, then that's the whole point of life, isn't it? He's reminding them, yes, you are as important as you think you are, but the way you do it, the way you live in response to that, that's what you're doing wrong. We have all been called. We've been sanctified in the sense that he talks about here. And we are called now to live different lives, to bear different fruit. And we have to assess ourselves. We have to look at ourselves and say, am I bearing fruit of jealousy, envy, division? Or am I bearing fruit of, well, children, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are things that God has not just planted, but is growing in us and will bring into fruition. Amen.